What is be rich? Is it the secret guide to get rich quick? Is it the way that we manipulate God to help us gain more money that we can save up for ourselves so we can fly around in a private jet? No, it is not. It is a different kind of series, and it's based on these verses. It's based on what Paul was talking about with Timothy. And today, I want to talk to you. This is the third part in our series, our Be Rich series. We do this. We did this last year. We're doing it this year. And this is what Paul, the apostle, says to Timothy. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world to, uh, not to be ignorant, nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Now, Jesus followers are commanded to be rich in good deeds and to be willing to share. And there's a lot of conversation in this country about what we should do about what's happening in our country. There's a lot of opinions about what we should do with our money and what we shouldn't do with our money, what we should be doing and what we shouldn't, what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing. And I think there's a lot of these conversations are very interesting. You can turn on your phone and flip through it. There's a lot of opinions about what you should be doing. And there's a lot of ideas and a lot of solutions with what we should be doing with our country and in our world. Uh, And what I believe is that we as a church have a collective opportunity to be the solution. And what we're going to look at today comes from the book of James. And James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a letter in the first century to Christians who were living in Jerusalem. And James was the pastor of the only Christian church in Jerusalem after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. And he took over and became the leader of this church. And he wrote a letter to some of the neighboring Christians in Israel And we're going to take a look at it. But before we do, I'm going to pray and invite God's presence. Will you pray with me? God, uh, we are so grateful that you are with us today. And God, uh, many of us have come here for different reasons. We have different motives, different agendas. Some of us are coming here this morning and we are so excited about life. And some of us here, God, we're just barely getting through. And I ask God that you would meet each person right now, that you would come. And that you would meet people in this room right now. God, I ask that you would meet me. God, I ask that you would show us how to be rich, how to dial in with what you're inviting us to become as Jesus followers. Help me to speak as I should. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you're following along in your Bible, if you have one of those books, or if you uh, have uh, something on your phone, a Bible app you can turn, or if you just want to move your eyes up to the screen. You can follow along there. Uh, Yeah, all the options. Uh, We have them all. We're so versatile as a church. Uh, We're going to be looking at James chapter 5, verses 1, and I'm just going to read the first phrase. And it says, now listen, you rich people. Cool. Awesome. So this is the point 
Or some of us are glad that we're not rich because it doesn't have any, we go, okay, this doesn't have anything to do with me. We read stuff like this in the Bible. Uh, This is the point where most of us just feel like we need to skip ahead to the next section because whoever wrote this doesn't know anything about me. And if they knew anything about me, they know that I don't have any money and I'm not rich. I just need to read the next section. He's only talking to rich people. Well, not so fast. Slow your roll. Sometimes it's difficult to believe the truth that we are richer than we think we are. And the reason we don't think we're rich is because we don't feel like we're rich. No matter how much money we make, we never really quite feel rich. The only time we ever feel rich is when. When do we feel rich? The first time we get our first paycheck in our first job. I remember this very specifically. I worked for S&R Produce and I used to stack fruit and they used to give me money for that. And it was wonderful. And I got my first paycheck and I was like, wow, oh, I'm so rich. And I remember the first time specifically when I got my first paycheck for being a professional Christian, aka a pastor. I got my pastor job and I was like, yeah, I got my paycheck and I brought my parents down. And I made Nicole, my wife uh, of 14 years. I know it's been fun and easy. Uh, we got married and, uh, the first time I got my first paycheck, uh, I got this new job being a pastor at a church. I took my parents to this pizza joint called Filio. And I remember specifically when the bill came, I was still kind of burping it up and I was like, don't worry, I got this one. I can buy the pizza because I'm rich. I got my first paycheck. And that was the first and last time I ever felt rich. And I thought to myself, well, I mean, I went, in, I went into ministry. <laughs> uh, and I thought, man, I am rich. What am I going to do with all this money? I know I'll buy my dad a, a medium pizza. <laughs> and the truth is, we don't feel rich for a number of reasons. First of all, for many of you, we don't feel rich because you have no financial margin. No matter how much money comes in and no margin means no financial peace. In fact, many of you are making more money than you ever thought you would make. And you still feel financial pressure, pressure that would not make sense to most people in the world today. The other reason we don't feel rich and or we don't recognize that we're rich is because we know what everybody else has. We know what everyone else drives. We know what everyone else Where's and of course there's Instagram and TikTok. There's all the things where you and it's a curse. And you can look at what everyone's doing and they go, man, everyone's life is better than my life. In fact, their children look better than I do. And my whole life just is doesn't even compare to their beautiful life. It's just terrible. Why can't I have more? Why can't I do more? Why can't I spend more? Why can't I travel like they do? And the reality is, and you won't feel this. And there's no way to make you feel this. And in fact, it's not even really important that you do feel it. But the reality is, by international standards, if you have a household income of $33,000, you are in the 1% club. 1% club. You are in the 1% wage earners in the entire world. And whenever I say this, there's never a huge roar of applause. And everyone's like, yeah, oh my gosh, one, one, one. (laughs) Like we're not cheering. No one ever says, oh, sweetheart or random person next to me. We did it. We're in the 1% club because you don't feel it. You don't feel it. And here's the implications of this. My goal in sharing this with you is not to make you feel guilty. The goal is to help you feel responsible. 
There are millions of people in the world today who think you and me were filthy rich. Now, back to James. James, uh, in his time, there was, assumption, there was this assumption in the first century that people who were rich were loved more by God. And the reason they had more money is because God loved them more. If you were a sick, poor person, meh, not so much. If you didn't have a lot of money and you were just generally poor, meh, maybe God doesn't like you that much. Poor people, God doesn't care about them that much. People thought that rich people were loved more by God. And when Jesus came to earth, we see that he set the record straight. And what we learn from the life of Jesus is that rich people aren't more loved. Rich people are more responsible. Rich people are more accountable. Rich people are actually expected to do more, to love more, and to give more. Because they have been given more opportunity. So James goes on and he says this. He says, now listen, you rich people. We've literally made it through the first four words. This is going to be a while. Uh, <laughs> don't worry. We'll wrap this up in the next five hours. So now, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming to you. Now, this was a shocker. He's saying, essentially, rich people, your future is not as secure as you think it is. And we're all thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. That's not true. I mean, rich people have the most secure future, don't they? That's why rich people never worry about the future, right? That's why rich people never worry about money, right? Well, yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. You know, we can do a, a, a call and response. We can be that kind of church. So if you feel it, uh, other than Brother George up here in the front, he, he's... <laughs> Everyone, I, and I don't know if you know it, everyone's always like, come on. And I, he goes, yeah, I'll be like, yeah, rich people feel it, right? And he's like, come on. I'm like, okay, I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> okay, okay, just you and me, we're going. But if someone else wants to join in, you're more welcome to do that. We can be that church. Anyway, I have no idea where I am. Okay, so rich people, uh, he's saying, wait a minute, that's not true. James was smart. James knew that the more you have, the more you tend to what? The more you want, then the more you worry. Because rich people tend to make a terrible mistake. The mistake that most of us make. In fact, if you've made this mistake, it might mean you're actually rich. What is it? Rich people have a tendency to put their trust in their wealth rather than putting their trust in the one who richly provided it for them. And this is something that poor people never do. Poor people never put their trust in money because they don't have any. <laughs> if you took that out of context and like, yeah, that would be terrible. But poor people, they don't trust their wealth because they don't have any wealth. And as soon as you begin to accumulate, as soon as I begin to accumulate, not meaning to our trust migrates from our heavenly father to the stuff that our heavenly father has provided. We forget his plan for our future. and We begin to focus on the stuff as our means of protection and our trust migrates to what our stuff should be for our future. And this is why it is so strange because many of you thought have more than you thought that you would ever have and you worry about it 
more than you've ever worried about it before. It's as if there's no matter how much you have, it's never enough because it never is enough. There's an endless set of what ifs. What if the stock market? What if I get sick? What if there's an accident? What if my spouse leaves me? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And consequently, without meaning to, our trust migrates from our heavenly father, who is the source of all good things, to what we have and what we're able to do with what we have. And the statistics prove this. The more we get, the more we have, the quicker our hands close around it. So James keeps going on and he says this. He says in verse two, he says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. You have so many clothes that you can't even wear them all and moths are eating them. You have so much gold or silver that you can't even take care of it and it's starting to tarnish. It's starting to become imperfect. You've hoarded and saved so much that it's decaying. Uh, the, even all the wealth that you have, it's starting to depreciate because you can't take care of it. James' point is simply this. You have held on to so much for yourself. Now it's not good for anything to anybody. It's not worth anything. And maybe you've experienced something like this. In our house, we have one of those drawers that you open up and anything could be in there. Uh, by show, of, am, am I alone in this where it's like, okay, we have uh, our other pastor. You're hired. Uh, <laughs> our board member laughed really hard. You can stay on. Uh, so does anyone have one of these drawers or do you all live in boxes? Okay, cool. Thank you. All right. I see a minor amount of support. So for the rest of us, you got to think of that drawer in the house. Maybe it was in the house you grew up with, or if you have an apartment and you look in that drawer and you go and they're like, this really needs to be cleaned out. There's like some button from some election you were a part of, and maybe some loose staples that are stapled together and somehow fell in there. And some notepad, like you were going to take notes for like your groceries or something in there and everything. There's like a, like I said, there's pens, there's a scissor set of scissors. There might even be a pack of gum, whatever it is. And it's all jammed in there and you're just, Ugh. I'll clean that next week. And you shove it closed. Um, so uh, I have uh, multiple of these around my apartment. And uh, when I lived in Ohio, I definitely had one of these. And in the bottom one, when I cleaned it out a few years ago, I actually found two unused old cell phones. Uh, and if I had, uh, so the point is, is this, in those, those phones had, when I got my new phone, had I given those phones away, they could have been useful for somebody. And had I sold those phones, I could have given the money away to someone who could have done something with the money. But I did that thing that I know we always do. Well, I might need this flip phone someday. <laughs> I might find a use for this someday. And now it's disappeared in a drawer and it's no good and it's not worth anything to anybody. And what James is doing here is he's reminding us that the issue is not how much comes in. The issue is how much stacks up. The issue is not what comes in, but how much stacks up. And James, like a prosecuting attorney, he leans into his audience 
And he says, their corrosion will testify against you. The decay of all this stuff, the things we accumulate, the things we collect for ourselves, the things we hoard. You think you're doing a good thing by hoarding, but I'm telling you, the thing that you are doing, you think is so good, is actually the thing that will testify against you. People will, after you're gone, will think not positive things about your hoarding. They will think negative things about you. And this is where James gets really brutal. If he, if he hasn't gotten brutal already, he gets really brutal and he leans into the cultural context of the people he's trying to communicate to. And he says, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Woo! Now, this is common judgment of God language. And in ancient times, uh, people were judged publicly and often they were punished publicly and they were often punished violently. People had a tendency to judge uh, what happened on earth as it related to punishment that God would do in the future. And so James was saying that God would punish them for the way they had mishandled the stuff which God ultimately had provided for them. And James assumes that there will be an accountability for everybody who has been given anything from God. Why would he think that, though? Why would James think that there will be accountability for people that have been given stuff from God? Why would he think that? Well, now, I know some of you aren't sure what you believe about a personal God, the whole idea of judgment. And you may feel like you're smarter than all that. And I get that. I understand that. I really do. But James believed that God was involved in the details of our lives. And James believed that there was an afterlife. And James believed that we are accountable for how we live our lives because of one simple thing. And it wasn't because of what he was taught. And it wasn't because of what he read. But because of one single incident in James' life. That led him to believe in all these things that were accountable. What is the one single thing? What is the one single incident? James watched his brother Jesus be crucified. He knew where his brother Jesus was buried. And then James had a conversation with his brother Jesus when Jesus rose from the dead. And when you have a conversation with someone who comes back from the dead you tend to believe that there might be something called eternal life. And friends, this is the essence of the gospel of Jesus. We as Jesus followers believe that Jesus died for our sins and broke the power of sin, but demonstrated that he had power over sin by rising from the dead. And James, who was the brother of Jesus, in the middle of his life, began to embrace this idea that Jesus wasn't just this great guy, but Jesus was actually Lord. And James was actually stoned to death for this belief that his brother wasn't just a normal guy, but that he was somebody that came back to life demonstrating that he truly was God. And James, who had a conversation with his risen brother, tells us in these verses that there's an afterlife. And that we are all accountable to our Heavenly Father for what we do with our stuff. Now, in case you missed his point, James tells us straight up. He says, 
Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. And the implication is that the end is near. The implication is this. Why hoard when your time is short? Why hoard what you have when your time here on earth is short? Now, this is a really interesting question for you. This is a really interesting question for me. And maybe you're a religious person, and maybe you're not. Regardless, this is something we should all wrestle with. Why would we hoard and save for the future when we act as if we're going to, and why would we act as if we're going to live forever? And here's what we all know. You're going to run out of time before you run out of stuff. And most of you are going to run out of time before you run out of money. Now let me explain to you in this way. Have you ever had to clean out someone's house who had passed away or moved into another home? Maybe you've worked with grandparents who have downsized and moved to a retirement home. Maybe you had to bury a relative or a parent or someone. And you go into the house and you see all this stuff. And you look around and you go, there's all these trinkets and things that belong to them. And you go to the basement and there's all these magazines from the 1980s. Or whatever it is. And you're like, there is so much stuff in there. They can't even use all this stuff. They never use the stuff even leading up to their death. I can't use any of this stuff. And the things that they considered of great value become an impediment to you. And you just start chucking stuff. You just start throwing away the stuff because what they thought was valuable really had no value at all. Now, something to think about. Our kids are going to tell a story about us. And if you don't have kids, maybe one day you will have kids. The people that are around you who love you the most are one day going to tell a story about you and a story about your stuff and how you manage your stuff. And here's the truth. What we do now will determine the story they tell and the example they see. This is what James is leaning into. He's like, come on, you wealthy people. You've hoarded your whole life. You've held on to things that are slowly losing value. And I, I thought you were a smart, wealthy person. I thought you were about increasing value. You're not increasing value. You're actually creating things that are going to cause people to think a negative thing about you. These are, all this wealth and stuff you're accumulating isn't a testimony for you. It's a testimony against you. So James, thinking that he's losing our attention, he says this, he says, look, the wages you have failed to pay the workers, because most of these people were either wealthy or uh, merchants or landowners. He says, the wages you have failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Now, in this time, wealthy landowners were often criticized for taking advantage of people who worked for them because the people who worked for them had no legal recourse. This was very common. And the landowner could offer a certain amount of money for work, and then if that work wasn't performed in a certain way, uh, they could, for this reason or that reason, they could withhold certain amounts of pay, and there was little or no recourse for the workers involved. So the wealthy at this time were constantly leveraging their power against the powerless to the detriment of people with less power. And he says, deprive the people without power, they're crying out against you. And this should worry us a little bit. If you're a business owner, or you manage employees of any kind, especially uh, if you're in the habit of looking for loopholes, 
or looking to not pay what you're supposed to pay, or if you're not doing for them, for your employees, what you know you're supposed to be doing for them, he says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. These people had legally taken advantage of the less advantage, and his point implies this. Resource people shouldn't look for loopholes to get by with doing less. But resource people, especially Jesus followers, resource people should look for opportunities to do more, to give more, to be more generous. Now, if all there is to this life is this life, then you can forget everything I'm saying. If all there is to this life is to accumulate, to get more money, to get more stuff, to go on some cool vacations, to buy some cool watches, and maybe a gold chain and a spray tan, whatever it is you want, then you don't have to worry about what I'm saying. And if all there is is this life is this life, then you are justified in saying this, I don't owe anybody anything because I've earned every penny that I have. I get that. But if there is more to this life, and of course, James, the brother of Jesus, would say that there's more to this life. He says, of course there's more to this life. I watched my dead brother rise from the dead. Of course I believe there's more to life than this life. If there's more to this life because of what Jesus has done, this is what Jesus would say in this situation. He would say, you're not just an owner, and it's not even your stuff. And at the end of the day, you're a steward of the stuff, and managers are going to be accountable to the owner who has gotten all this stuff. And so according to Jesus' talk, what we learned from Jesus, we are to be commended for working hard. We are to be commended for working hard. You are to be commended when you save money. You are to be commended for being responsible. Now, I know for me that it's turned out in my life that I have more money than I thought I would ever have. And the reason, though I feel that I have more money than I ever have, is because I have no financial goals. <laughs> and the truth is, if you never set a goal, you'll be surprised how well life goes for you. <laughs> and Nikki and I are so grateful for the money we've been able to, what the, for the money we've been able to earn. And we're so grateful. We thought we we have more than we ever thought we'd have, and, and it just didn't fall out of the sky. And we didn't like. You know, when the, like, the buckets come through, we didn't, like, just steal money out of the buckets. Because there's rules against that, and also because I'm a Christian. I would never do that. But when I read the Bible, I read that we're commended for, because I've worked hard, I'm commended for being a good steward of my time and my treasure that God brought my leg. But I also discover, and you will discover, that we're commended for being working hard, but we're commanded to be generous. I am commanded to be above average generous. I am commanded to do more because I, than to give more because I have more. And even if I earn it, I'm still responsible for what I have in light of the fact that God has given me every single gift. And he put me in the family I'm in. He put me in America for this period of time. And I took advantage of it. And at the end of the day, no matter what I've accomplished or what we've earned, we are still accountable to our Heavenly Father. Why? Because at the end of our life, how much are we going to leave behind? The answer is no less than 
100% of it. And one day, somebody else is going to have all of your stuff, which means it's not really your stuff. James is, of course, not done. He just keeps hitting them left and right. He's got his audience up against the ropes. And this is what he says in verse 5. He says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. He says, you have become greedy. You have become the victim of consumption assumption. Have you ever heard of this? The idea of consumption assumption. The consumption assumption of, is this. If it comes to me, it must be for me. If it comes to me, it must be for me. If it comes to me, it belongs to me, I can do whatever I want with it. James says, no, 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 no. That's not the way the real world works. That's not how it works in God's economy. That's not how it works in God's kingdom. Just because it came to you doesn't mean it's actually for you. Then this next part will probably go right over your head. And it might not mean a thing to you. It's not going to elicit any emotion from you. Uh, but when James wrote this and this verse, this next verse, was read aloud uh, to the church, when it was read aloud in front of the church, this was <clears throat> a literal showstopper. He didn't want them to miss it, the gravity and the importance of this topic. And he says, little did you know, the truth is, and this is, this is where it gets great. He says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. To which we are like, well, what does that mean? I mean, it means absolutely nothing. Um, I don't know what day of slaughter is. Please, Chris, teach me. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> in this day and age, rich people would have cattle, and they would pick a calf, and they would put it in a pen, and they would overfeed it, and they would protect it, and they would guard it, because eventually they were going to have something to celebrate. Now, when, they, when you have something to celebrate now, you have Thanksgiving coming up, uh, and if uh, you, you might uh, celebrate Christmas here at this uh, Christian church in, on Sunday morning, uh, you, you would order a turkey, or maybe you would order a Christmas ham or something. Uh, whatever you plan to eat, you have that food, uh, and it gets delivered, and if you don't like it, what you do is you go out and you buy another one, and if you find out you have last-minute guests who are coming, you just go out and you pick up uh, another one, and that's how you feed people. That's how you prepare for celebrations in America. Now, the interesting thing back then is that things didn't work that way. They didn't have the same kind of grocery stores. The only things that kept were wine and grain. And so if you were rich enough, you could have a little bit of cattle, so you could have a little bit of meat. Consequently, you had to think way ahead before your celebrations. And here's the interesting thing that James is doing with this illustration. He's saying, look, you rich people, you think you're so smart. You think you're planning way, way ahead. You think you're planning for something awesome, but you're actually planning for your own embarrassment. You're planning on fattening up a calf, thinking that you're going to have something to celebrate, but you're the one who's actually going to be slaughtered. You're the one who's fattening up for the slaughter. You think that you've accumulated and hoarded. It's all good for a good celebration, but at the end of the day, you all that hoarding will not lead to celebration. It will lead to your complete and utter embarrassment. Now, when the people read this first, they were shocked. They were literally shocked. And what it actually turned out to be true. Now, James, here's what we know. 
James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred, we think, roughly in the year 62 AD. He was stoned illegally uh, by the high priest. There was a transition of governor, and in that time there was a transition of leadership. And so the high priest at that time said, hey, we need to get rid of this James. He's a thorn in our side. He's causing a lot of problems for us. So what we'll do is we'll stone him. Uh, and you actually can't read about the stoning of James uh, how he was martyred in 62. The only way you can read this is you can read extra-biblical literature found uh, by the writer Josephus. He was a Jewish uh, philosopher and historian. He actually recorded it. And here's the fascinating thing about all this. Here's something that's fascinating. Seven years later, after James died, seven years later, all the rich people in Jerusalem found themselves trapped in Jerusalem with all of their stuff around them, surrounded by the Roman army. Eventually, they were all starved, they died of disease, they were murdered by other Jews in the city because there was mob conflict taking place in the city, or they were enslaved. Eventually, every single person in Jerusalem who was wealthy was expelled. And get this, all of their wealth, all of it, all of their wealth was carted off the road. Those with the most to lose lost the most. Now, did James know this was going to happen? I don't know. Jesus predicted it, but Jesus didn't give a date. I don't know that James uh, knew historically uh, the circumstances that were going to happen. Uh, but James ultimately knew, ultimately, uh, what happened to them is the same thing that will happen to each of us. One day, our lives will be over, and what we did with our stuff will say about as much as, uh, of us as anything else. So the moral of the story is, you better give while the giving's good. What I cling to now may be a source of embarrassment later. Now, I'm going to let you sort all of that out personally. Some of you are Christians. Some of you don't know what you believe about God, and that's totally cool. You are totally welcome here. Uh, some of you are exploring faith, and some of you are like, you know, good God, how much longer is this thing going to go on? I, I assure you, it's that's only a few more hours. Um, I get that. I get that. I get that. But here's the thing. You will have to give an account. You have to give an account, and you're going to have to figure out what you think about what James said. And that leads us back to the original verse. We're called, commanded to do good, to be rich with a lot of good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this season, in Thanksgiving season coming up, and in the Christmas season, we have an opportunity to do good deeds and to be generous as a church. And let me just clarify that being rich in good deeds and being generous is not in lieu of bringing your tithes and offerings to this church. It is something that we do above and beyond with what God has given us. And moving forward, here's some things that we have planned. And I want to make you aware of them. Um, so, uh, again, this year we're going to do Imagine LA. And some of you participate in this. Basically, we buy Christmas presents for people that are underserved, um, who are in transition, homeless uh, families who need Christmas gifts. We're going to do that again, and we're going to seek to double our effort. 
last year. We had a, we did a great job, and I think that we can do more. Um, the team has decided that we're going to do more. So we give Christmas gifts to people that can't afford them, mainly children. Uh, we have the Upward Bound House. We're preparing to do some work in partnership with them. These are homeless families who are in transition in Santa Monica. We'll do some work with them. Team World Vision. There it is, single group. Led by the great one himself, Patrick Vukovic. Uh, they're going to be building clean water wells in Africa by raising lots of money. You can participate in that by either being a runner for the marathon, or you can, um, in fact, uh, give money to those things. And of course, you can always help us build Pacific City Church. We're a church that is presenting the gospel and sharing life with Jesus here uh, in, in Santa Monica and beyond, and you can always give to that. Now, so whether you choose to join up with one of our ministries or one of our opportunities, or you choose to give your money elsewhere, the thing is this. If you're a Jesus follower, you know this. Jesus was so clear. He said that your devotion to God, your devotion to the God that you cannot see, your devotion to God is demonstrated. It's best demonstrated and most authenticated through your love of the people that you can see. Do you understand that? As a Christian, extravagant, over-the-top generosity is appropriate. It is the perfect response in light of God's extravagant generosity towards us. So don't miss this huge opportunity to make a huge difference this Thanksgiving and this Christmas season, to make a huge difference throughout our community. We are going to do this. Let's be rich. Let's be generous. Let's show our communities and our city that religion just isn't about sermons and our, it isn't just about songs. Let's demonstrate the generosity and the compassion of our Father in Heaven to our actual world here. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't we all stand?